Hi guys, and welcome back to You're On Crackmate, the podcast where we delve into films, television series, and whatever takes our fancy, really, analysing and reviewing them to the point where we've been told flat out, you're on Crackmate. At this point, I am delighted to welcome back my hetero life mate, Joseph Ernie. How are you, Joseph? Fine, Sean, I dropped my notes and I'm trying to readjust them so that they don't make a noise during the podcast. I know I'm back up and running, so we're all fine. That is, that is all good. See, guys, professionalism. Is it, is, is it too much to ask? And actually, I have another question on the topic of professionalism show. What is it? What I hear is, that. I, what? Professionalism. I hear that word being bandied out. Um, you strike me as a professional, but I don't know what that means. This is, this is a trick question. I don't know what's going on right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much feeling unsafe in this situation. <laughs> so it's standard podcast at me then. Now, Sean, because of uh, that, I'm going to be lousy straight back to you and say today we're going to discuss the 1988 classic Willow. For those people who haven't seen it, Sean, explain the plot of Willow. Uh, okay, it's Lord of the Rings meets Star Wars and New Hope. Excellent. Now you have to go into more depth. In this All right, okay, cool. Story. <laughs> uh, so it... So, right, Willow is played by Warwick Davis, and he is who you think of straight away when you think of the film Willow. Uh, funny story, not the lead character. Um, and he is more or less on a quest to save this human child who there's a bit of a Snow White element going on here. There's an evil queen who has read a prophecy that there's this one little girl is going to rise up and basically smush her. Um, and so she pulls a Herod. Oh, my goodness, this is going to be a dip. I, I don't think I can elevator pitch this one. Sorry. Right. She pulls a Herod and orders basically all the babies in the kingdom to be like put to death. And um, thankfully, the one daughter who's important was given like Moses's mother gave birth to her, puts her on a thing of reeds. No, gives her to the. The daughter ends up in Willow's possession and um, he then finds out pretty quickly can't stay there. So he has to take the one ring. To, he has to take the little girl to some humans. Literally, he's told, go find a human. Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter where. And then she'll be grand. Uh, naturally, that's a problematic plan. Um, and they find Val Kilmer in a cage. Um, and then some more shenanigans. Then quite possibly the worst evil commander of any opposing army ever. Because she's actually quite a nice person and takes about, oh, well, maybe. And that's how she's convinced. Um, so when I say worst, I like her, but I would never give her control of my armed forces. Um, and also a guy who wears a skull mask and there's a tower. And then there's the prequel to Saruman v. Gandalf. And then it's the Hunchback of Notre Dame ending. Now, watching this, I had read about the Star Wars kind of you know, feel to it. I didn't really get that. I completely got Lord of the Rings feel off it. Like, mm. you know, from the, I suppose, you know, the, now we're just going to be politically correct and we hope we're right on this. We're going to say little people, if we are wrong, we do apologize, but that's what says online and we fully think that that is the right terminology. If we're wrong, we really, really, really do apologize. That is true. Uh, uh, Joseph thinks that this is entirely correct. And if, if he is wrong, please, I'm sorry, the basis but just to, no, just to reiterate, uh, we have our, in, in our we research for oh my god I can't say we I'm cutting that out I can't say our we research oh my god <laughs> he, 
You have to leave all this in. <laughs> I can't show you can't, you killed. You can't edit this out. This is, this is a live podcast. <laughs> Just to reiterate what Show was saying there. Yeah, from what we've seen, uh, we believe little people is the correct terminology. That's what we'll be going with in this episode. But please, if that is incorrect, do, do let us know. Um, thank you very much. Um, like, obviously, little people remind you of the hobbits. And you just yes. in, you know, they're given something in their possession that they have to basically, you know, move somewhere else. Um, as you said at the very end of the movie, you effectively have Sauron versus Sauron, or not Jeepers Gandalf versus Sauron. It's basically the exact same fight, isn't oh, it? It, it is like it is the fight. Like it's hilarious. Absolutely priceless. Um, and that's the funny thing, in all the reading I was doing on it, there was very little to you know acknowledgement of the connection between, say, you know, how this feels like Lord of the Rings. I said I said I only saw the Star Wars stuff, but I didn't really feel the Star Wars stuff from it. I think now maybe it's just where my brain is, is I see Lucas, I think Star Wars. And so this is a Lucasfilm production. So even though George Lucas didn't direct it, Ron Howard did. Yeah. It's still, there's so many shades of Lucas in it. And a lot of that is positive. I have a lot of very good things. Sorry, just right. Spoiler. I did quite enjoy this film, but I feel this film benefits nostalgia or benefits from nostalgia. Whereas I don't have the nostalgia to add to this, but I have a lot of good to say about it, but I have some, I have some, I am, in 2021, I've just seen this film for the first time, kind of thoughts as well. But this is one of those movies that, you know, I've often said on this podcast, the 80s was brilliant for fantasy movies and it worked better than anything. Completely you agree. Know, it's come, like this, here's a perfect example, right? We, like, when we spoke about Star Wars Episode 2 and Episode 3, one of the points I made is that there's this prophecy that we're never told about. We never told who wrote it, what it meant, or anything like that. This movie starts with a prophecy and there's no explanation as to who wrote it, what it meant. We don't even see the Queen being really evil to anybody at any kind of point or anything like that. The, well, a lot of babies get murdered, show. I know, that's fine. We can kind of, we can bypass that. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, but hang on a second. <laughs> the, the, the babies are being murdered because of the prophecy, if you know what I mean, right? So I'm saying is that's, a, like, that's, an, that, that's an, a, an effect from the prophecy. Before the prophecy, we have no idea in what way was she bad and things like that. That's what I meant. Sorry, my apologies. Um, so, like, but you, it was the 80s. You kind of get over it. Like, you don't need to see anything else. It was funny. You texted me about two hours ago. And it was one of the points that I wanted to bring up is when oh, you yeah. see her, her basically the master of her armies, kind of just kind of walks in the door and he's there going, yeah, anyway, I destroyed that that uh, that kingdom free there and destroyed their army. And <laughs> she just kind of looks at him and goes, yeah, whatever. Anyway, I'm just going to go and talk about something else. Everyone's <laughs> just kind of standing around going, um, any acknowledgement here at all? Do you want to get a medal? We lost 40,000 people in this fight. Like, yeah. What the actual? Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. It's just, it's, I feel, so here's one of the really nice things I said about it. I think there's a good sense of humor running throughout this film. It's not necessarily in the script as it is in a lot of the direction. Yeah. So, and that's, God love George Lucas. We have spoken many times about his writing. Yeah. Um, but I think Ron Howard does quite a good job of, um, um, you know, bringing a lot of that humor to the surface. 
Um, yeah, in fairness, like, and Ron Howard was was kind of he was just off the back of Cocoon at this point. Like when say when we were just talking about the background there. So I think Lucas originally had the idea in 1972 about it. I think it was called the original title of it was Munchkins, I believe it was. Oh, I'm so glad they didn't go with that one because I mean I don't think it was particularly good in 1988, but it most certainly would not have aged well at this no. stage. No, and I think, like they were saying then, when he met Warwick Davis on the set of Return of the Jedi in 1982, that he kind of figured this is the actor for the role. Like, um, But now, in fairness, this is back when Lucas really wanted to kind of uh, push the barrier of special effects. It's, it's actually interesting. At the moment, I'm listening to an audiobook of the oral history of Star Wars, and they're talking about, I'm just oh, finished up nice. A New Hope. It's, it's only been recently released, and the book is, and... Um, they're just someone then I'm just gone off uh, a new hope into the Empire Strikes Back. But it's just interesting that you know back those is Lucas wanted to do certain things and basically the technology wasn't ready. So either he waited for it or he just created it himself, which you know was pretty visionary and pretty cool. So he wanted to wait until the technology was right to do this. And um he wanted to make sure that look obviously you know, didn't want it to be too bad obviously in 1999 that changed when he just wanted to shove bad special effects in our face one of the things i actually thought was really cool about the background to this is um when he was trying to get it kind of you know picked up by a distributor or a studio sorry uh, no one wanted to take it a lot of people have been burnt by movies like crawl and things like that and they kind of felt there was nothing left in the fantasy genre but he went to MGM where Alan Ladd was was there. And I don't know if you know Alan Ladd, but he was basically working at Fox when they were making Star Wars. And basically- uh, I was to get Alan Ladd, I know the name straight, yeah. okay. And when they were trying to pull the plug on Star Wars, he kept saying, basically, no, uh, we're going to make this. And he kept trying to you know, tell them, look, it's going to be a hit. So he, I think he kind of gave Lucas, a, not, I don't think he gave him the full budget, but I think gave him enough of a budget and just said, look, we'll break up the rights after that. To basically help get it kind of um help kind of get it made and get it over the line like so it's just it, like in the 1980s like the late 70s and the base most of the 80s completely belonged to like george lucas and steven spielberg like with star wars and indiana jones and the willow and things like that like they were just they were everywhere at the time and actually um because i think it's it's called out in the comparisons a lot is you know et which i know is not fantasy but also isn't it so it would obviously be a sci-fi film but it's you know this stranger in a strange land you know trying to get home here's this quest there's a you know dark forces chasing them a lot of crossover shade so like that's what i mean sorry as in just spielberg and lucas owned kids entertainment really yeah for a lot of the decade and then you know this wee upstart who had come off this television show and had appeared in a film of Lucas's before. What year was American Graffiti actually? Was that 70s or 80s? Oh, 70s. It was, it was before oh, Star Wars. Of course, yeah. I appreciate it. I have yeah. seen it. It's not bad. It's, I appreciate it. The thing we were saying is that about being an 80s film, like there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of dark scenes in it and things like that, especially with the end confrontation at the castle with the trolls. Like it is pretty kind of, you know, like for if you, you wouldn't show that nowadays in a kid's movie at all. No, like, or you if shouldn't you show it then. Or if you did, you'd have a character making a kind of a wisecrack at something that was actually going on. Like, but this was like, I really enjoyed this from that point of view because when you watch these films, there was so much imagination that went into it. Like, I think as well, you know, 
like we discussed before about, you know, how if you're limited in terms of, say, your capabilities from a special effects kind of situation, you have to be creative in how you kind of present things. And like you feel that there's an entire world here, even though you don't really see it. Like you don't see, say, Val Kilmer's people, their lands being wiped out or anything like that, but you know what's happened and mm. things like that. And I like I really enjoyed kind of that part of it. One of the biggest problems I have with it is the movie takes a bloody eternity really to get going. It's a long time to go. Like it's and this is where actually funny enough, you you said about the Lord of the Rings influence, and I really got that. It feels like it, almost like a mash together of fellowship and return of the king. Um but it's though I mean obviously these films were made much later, having learned so never mind the books, but having learned something from cinema. Yes, they were able to take their time because they had, you know, whatever. Whereas here, it's like they took some of the longer bits of the Shire. Now, I yeah. love Fellowship and I love the Shire, but I know I'm sitting down to a three and a half hour movie, you know. But so when I'm an hour in and we're still kind of dicking about in the Shire and I know there's only an hour left because I've timed this because we're doing a pod in an hour and 10 minutes. I'm just like, there's a lot of stuff has to happen in the next hour. A lot, yeah. And what's worse yeah. is that there are certain parts where even at that, it drags. Like, you know, I enjoyed Val Kilmer in it. I thought he was actually really charismatic. I thought yeah. it was fun. What I thought was actually very funny is when you first see him and he's in the cage, the first thing I, I noticed, I know it's going to sound really weird, is his teeth. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no way anyone's teeth are that clean at this kind of time. And No, when you first see him, his teeth are wrecked. They're destroyed. They're totally What am I off. thinking of them? When he's in the cage, his, um, his teeth are they're black, they're marked a whole lot. But as the movie goes by, he actually, the teeth actually completely whiten up. As the movie talk, goes through. I need to talk to his orthodontist. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Uh, okay, so I obviously didn't notice that about the teeth because I only noticed at the end of it, it's like, oh, well, Prince Charming is alive and well. Um, I, I like, uh, it's, there's actually another parallel to Lord of the Rings is... Um, I think when they were filming that scene with him in the cage, it actually, the cage dropped and it fell on his foot. And when you see a couple of scenes later, he's actually limping and it's from that. And it goes back to when Viggo Mortensen kicked the helmet in the two towers and actually broke a toe. Because he is, this guy is the shyster version of Strider. Oh yeah. You know, but like he's, but having said that, uh, because this is, I think it's safe to say that despite some of the horrific visuals, this is aimed at children. This oh, film. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they don't spend too long having big moral dilemmas. And which which is why, you know, my joke about Sorsha um, and her 0.68 seconds of wondering of, should I switch sides or something? Look, it's it's grand, you know. You know, you pretty much, well, you know she's going to be good when one of the first lines spoken about her is, she is the one person whose loyalty I don't question. Oh, traitor. No, but she. But, but I think straight after that, doesn't the other person say she'll probably betray you, betray you? But what was worse is when, when, I was, when I was doing reading into it, like there was um, some of the scenes that were in the script that were cut, and like you know the complete. This is this is almost like sorry, it's not almost like this is a kind of a Batman uh, v Superman Dawn of Justice scenario whereby you know you kind of need the uh, the theatrical cut released. <laughs> yes, like we see Val Kilmer's character, and he's in a cage. When we first encounter him, right? So apparently, according to the behind-the-scenes stuff, he was actually a knight in that land that was actually sacked. Uh, but he was a reckless fellow. He got into trouble, um, but he had a chance to regain his honor on the battlefield, and he just basically punked out, and he left. And that's why he was basically, you know, in disgrace, and he was desert, or he was a deserter, and things like that. And then with the character of Sorsha. But if we mm -hmm. all knew she was going to turn good, but of course. 
in the scene where they're in the castle and all those people are in rock. Yeah. One of those people is actually her father and he's actually kind of a wizard and he kind of, he comes through the rock and he basically says to her, look, basically your one's evil. You've got the side of Willow and Man Morrigan in this. Uh, and you're kind of there going like, you could have thrown that in. Like you could have easily cut a couple of minutes off all the stuff in Willow's village and just put that stuff in because it would have actually made a bit of a difference to it as well. I'm actually, Joe, thinking of things to cut, there's a fierce lot of pigs in this film. There's a fair, I mean, like, it, I'm not saying cut all the pigs, but you could cut some of them. I was reading, apparently, they tried, They kept trying to mate when, uh, when they were filming, so they had to use buckets of cold water to stop the pigs. Oh, my God. Can you imagine how annoyed you'd be? You're like, well, why would you bring me to an orgy and then throw buckets of cold water on me? I, I, you are, I don't understand what you're doing here. You will be hearing from my agent. Now, I have to ask a question. The pixies, annoying to a hugely annoying degree, or were you accepting of them? So they're the little brownies, the two, the, the Cheech yeah. and Chong, yeah? Yeah. yeah. And no, sorry, I deliberately use that not because, oh, any side characters. <laughs> it's like, it's that kind of, what is the point of them? Yeah. They're not funny, um, in my opinion. Um, like, okay, one gets stoned. That's his character arc. Um, because we have to then learn, oh, this dust does this. So when Matt Morrigan gets this dust, all right, that's fine. The, and I just feel you could lift them right out of the film and it make the only gag that I would miss is during the pig scene, there's two piglets. Is there? The, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Willow looks down at one point and there's just, oh, there we go. Uh, but I mean, that's it. It's not worth keeping them in the film for that gag alone. Yeah, like I'd wonder um, if anyone hasn't seen it. If you one oh, of the, spoilers, <laughs> sorry. If you haven't seen it, what you listen to this podcast for? Well, uh. <laughs> the um, one of the pixies is played by uh, Kevin Pollock, and he's a very good impressionist, actually. And if you haven't seen it, look up his impression of William Shatner because it's one of the yeah, it's one, it's it's one of the funniest fantastic. things you've ever come across. Like he's he's absolutely hilarious in it. Like. Um, one thing as well is uh, I'm going to try and see if you will get this because I got it um, and I knew you would. What's the Star Trek connection to this film? Okay, right, okay. Now, there's nothing jumping out at me straight away and you're probably screaming at me behind your eyes. Well, you, you, you've now failed if that's what you are at already, yes. It's one of the characters, obviously, of course, it's Kevin. It's not, it's not Kevin Pollock's impression of uh, William Shatner, I don't know. Damn, that was like, oh, there we go then, that's it. That was the one I was going to go with. Is it, did they use all of these sets to film the Robin Hood episode in uh, TNG? Negative. It is... Uh, no, yeah, good. What, what is it? So Val Kilmer's friend, the leader of the good army. Uh, Eric. It, uh, yeah, that fella. Yeah. Two things, actually. One, he's actually Irish. He was actually born in Dublin. Um, he's one of our own and two he played the leader of the first Kazon ship that Voyager encounters in the Delta Quadrant oh I'm so sorry to hear that yes ah I'm kidding no that's so cool no I didn't know that I didn't know that that's so cool the second second I saw him I I saw him talking I was there going 100 million percent that guy was in Star Trek at some point and he was was no I I absolutely did not recognize him but they're going like he has a record, but you know who I thought he was? And I know he clearly wasn't this person, but I thought he was the, the news guy from Die Hard, the reporter. 
Oh, yes, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, I can. There was a few actors around that time who kind of almost effectively looked the same. Wait a second. Is, is, the, guy, is the actor who played him the same guy who played Walter Peck in Ghostbusters? Is the reporter. Yes, he is. Yeah. He is, is he? Yeah. Is he? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Sure. Yes. I'm now less sure. <laughs> well, you're going to, to... I'm going to let Sean look that up now. Um, and while Sean is looking that up, we will talk about the soundtrack to the movie as well. Um, Must we? Yes. We do love James Horner, but we, J- J- James Horner can copy himself a few times, unfortunately. Um one thing, actually, look, when you listen to the music, look, clear as day, you're going to hear Star Trek influences at some point. There's clearly Wrath of Khan music going on in there as well. But this is one that I was kind of, uh, that really kind of struck me, is I felt that the main team of the movie, oh, it's the same guy, is it? Oh, there yeah. we go. Um, one thing that struck me was that the main team of this film sounded remarkably similar to the main team of the Disney movie, uh, Basil the Great Mouse Detective. I have not seen that. Um, it's one of the ones there's, there's some of, because that, no, that's not Disney Renaissance, but it would definitely be 80s as well, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, now, I, do you know the answer to this? Sorry, I'm going to say, I'm going to go and check. Was it James Horner that did the music to Basil? Because no. I think he started in 84 with Wrath of Khan-ish. I think there was obviously other projects, but that was his sorry, big Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just, 82, just, 82, I was testing just, you. I was just, testing you, Shelton. Hand in the nerd card right now. Hand it right over. This podcast is now at an end. The You're on Crackman podcast will no longer be pre- pre- presented by Sean Ferrick as he has to spend at least four years in nerd prison for what he's just done. Do what do you infer? I got the date of listening to this. Going, I got the year of Wrath of Khan wrong. Oh my yeah. god! Somebody's gonna be so listening to this, going like, Joseph, like that's so silly. That's whatever. No, no, no. There is a good percentage of people right now who have either switched off and can't hear me, you know, trying to scramble back, or are just like screaming at their devices, which is gonna look hilarious if somebody's sitting on the tube. Uh, you absolute bastard! Like, yeah, I don't know. Wrath of Khan, seventy-two. One of them. Um, and lol no James Horner did not do the music for uh, Basil the Great Mass Detective at all it was someone else but I just oh. thought that the, that the thing that, that the theme kind of sounded quite um, kind of say the same but it, like overall I enjoyed the movie in terms of I know I'm not wrapping up the podcast of course when I say that I really thanks very much for dropping by everybody and <laughs> <laughs> they take out again as we said the long build up and then when it kind of got into it I really I, I started to enjoy it like I did enjoy Warwick Davis in the role I was really surprised yeah. to see he's only he was only 17 when they made this that was like because his age confuses me because he was in the original Star Wars trilogy and yet he looked so young in Phantom Menace. I was like, but surely the fact that he was in the original trilogy. Anyway, no, children can act, Sean. Uh, so yeah, so he was only, what'd you say, 17 doing this he, film? So he would have been probably around 13 when they filmed Return of the Jedi. Mm. So if that's right, so he would have only, geez, he would have only been about 29 when they made Phantom Menace. That is, that is bonkers. Yeah. Very young, oh, like, when yeah. you put it like that, that is bonkers. Actually, sure. no, sorry, he would have been actually 28 because like we've been 15-year difference between when they would have filmed it. Yeah, so we were 28 years old, yeah. He's still, yeah, going, he's, he's still, he's still actually going strong. He hosts a game show on BBC at the moment. Well, funny, that, now, the last thing I saw him, which 
by no means is the last thing he was in is he was in an episode of Doctor Who where he was one of the lead characters, right? And I was up and going, how old are you, Warwick? You ageless, ageless thing, you. But like, he's only, like, he mightn't even be 50 yet, like. That is bizarre. Yeah, you're, you're, no. Mm. Mm. He, was born, he was born in 1970. So yeah, he's 51. Oh my, oh my goodness. Like, going, yay. And let's have many more years of Warwick Davis, please. But again, like, yeah, like it's kind of obviously, look, the movie has to really kind of live and die with him. And um, like, as you were saying, like Val Kilmer gets title billing and mm. even George Lucas wasn't happy with that because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the whole central character is Willow like and like, you know, he is enjoyable. He does kind of annoy me at times when he keeps on saying Mad Morrigan as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, like. The, actually, that is one thing that strikes me. This so, perhaps can you enlighten me? So I do not know the answer to this. Can you like, is this based on something like nope. any one thing? There's a fierce load of like cool fantasy names in it, but there's a lot. Like you know, it's kind of like, and I mean, sorry, that's not a sin in itself. It's like, it's like they're said with such confidence. It's like, oh, sure, you know, Matt Morrigan. Sure, you know, Mad Morgan and Bav Morda. You know, Bav. Yeah, good old Bav. Yeah. There was, there was I do not sense. know these people. Please. Yeah. There was definitely a sense you were getting dropped into it without kind of, you know, any kind of foreknowledge and things like that. I know that I think Lucas wanted to make it a kind of a series of films, but I think when yes. the box office came in, it wasn't that good. So what they did is actually they made. Um, there was three books written afterwards. Well, George Lucas had the story, uh, but there was uh, Chris Claremont wrote them. So there was Chronicles of the Shadow War, Shadow Moon, and Shadow Dawn. So when I was reading about them earlier on, apparently the first book wasn't too well received, but there's a podcast out there. I can't remember the name of it, but effectively it's a, uh, effectively podcast is worst books we've ever read kind of thing. Oh dear. <laughs> it's one of them. But the funny thing is, after all these years, like, what is it, 33 years later now, the, there's a Disney Plus TV show coming next year. Just uh, now, probably just this evening, saw that, <laughs> be honest with you, I did not do my research ahead of today. So, yes, this evening, I saw that that was coming. Yes, Ron Howard confirms. Now, this is the one thing, I guess, I suppose, all hail the conquering mouse. You know, Disney Plus has been quite good for bringing stuff back, giving us TV series. The trailer for Hawkeye dropped yesterday. It's a lot of fun, I have to say. Um, uh, your furrowed eyebrows tend to not agree with me. I didn't um, watch it. I didn't watch oh, right. no, it. Did. No, no, no. It, it, it. I have to say, it looks like fun. We'll we'll see if this ages like milk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I will be. I based on enjoying this film. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely come back for a mini series and see if it's see if it's enjoyable. I wonder what they will do with it. That's what apparently. Um, Warwick Davis has been asked many, many, many times over the years, like, oh, would you come back for a sequel? And his answer is kind of it. I think it's as he's grown up, his answer had been, well, I'd like to see, you know, what does he do? What do you do when you go home? What do you do when, you know, the action has all stopped and, and all that kind of thing? And I think it's a really good jumping off point for a lot of fantasy sequels. Yeah. You know, what happens when, when you've chucked the ring into Mount Doom? You know, what happens when Voldemort's dust in the wind? You know? Who but pays the taxes? You know, like 
there's always room, especially with a lot of the 80s stuff for not necessarily sequel movies, because like, the, like I think nowadays we are looking at a stage where, you know, series, limited run series is better than, say, a sequel movie and things like that. Like if you look at the, I watched The Dark Crystal, I was going to say recently, I forgot, it's about 13 years since I watched it, so I bought it on DVD. And I like, you know, they made the, you know, the sequel TV series to go along with it and things like that. And it's like, there were so many wonderful ideas of movies back in those days. And like, just because, you know, the movies in the 80s, it might be cheesy as hell. It might be, might be pretty corny. It doesn't mean that you can't make a good kind of, you know, TV series out of it. Like, say, for instance, I remember watching the original Stargate movie and I thought it was quite boring. And then they made a TV series about it that apparently was brilliant, which I never watched. (gasps) I, I tried a few times. I couldn't get past the comedy. I just couldn't. Oh, there is. And that is one of the things. Okay. Well, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but the comedy builds into the series. I like Stargate. Stargate's good. <laughs> it was actually interesting when I was watching this movie and I saw the credits uh, come up at the start of the film. They were given the list of actors and actresses and all that. And I saw the name Joanne Wally. And yeah. I don't know if you're old enough to remember it, but I just remember it's there are certain names that you'll often hear and you'll just immediately go, you'll know the name full. And I remember going, wait a second, her name is Joanne Wally Kilmer. And I was there going, wait a second. So I checked it out. And yes, after this movie, Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally got married and had, I think, two kids. Oh, I didn't know they had kids. I knew they got married. I didn't know they had children, though. Yes, and they got divorced as well. Uh, as it sounds awful, but as tends to happen in yes. Hollywood. Um, and to which it is, then you hear the stories of where it doesn't happen. Uh, but no, 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 no. Give up dreams of love. If you're going to get a job in Hollywood, you will be sad and alone. One of the things that I really enjoyed this film as well was the use of the morphing technology. It was one of the first kind of uses of it. Um, yes. Because I using... That was obviously used in Star Trek Six then as well, three years later um, and all that. But again, it's a chance, Captain. It takes a lot of effort. <laughs> it's great that, you know, again, like anything to do with the development at ILM and how they were kind of, you know, basically creating new things and trying to, you know, push the envelope, especially effects on art. I absolutely love seeing, you know, the, their attempts and how they kind of did it. And like, in fairness, it's not bad how it actually came across on the screen at all. Like, the only thing with it was, is I didn't have a clue what the hell was going on when he was trying to change her into human form again I was I have there a notion going... I still don't really understand like I watched it and I'm still like did I get it so you had to believe in the which basically you have to believe in the magic for the magic to work is that kind of how for the sorcerers well that's what I thought but he, he, he kept saying like chanting something but I was there going but has someone told him the words or is he just making this up yeah like I maybe now maybe this was a suspension of disbelief or something and i was kind of like oh it's coming from inside him which yeah. i was okay with the way it's presented i'm actually okay with. that could be a real corny answer but it's it's very kind of endearingly put across but it was still like so is there is he just saying you know he's not saying abracadabra but is it like is it just i will say the magic word over and over and over again and then it's going to stick at one point which is why we get the entire animal kingdom before we land on Roselle. yeah um which is a as you were saying, a bloody cool, just sequence in general. And also, maybe leave her as a tiger. That whole Gandalf e. Saruman fight would have been pretty interesting <laughs> if uh, one of them is a wand-wielding tiger. Um, and now I know what I want for the sequel series. But uh, 
I enjoyed the fact as well that like when they're trying to, you know, all the human, all the men are turned into animals and things like that. And then like yeah. it's, it's basically what Willow and the you know the wizard kind of go into this basically this side kind of barn and they're going, we bring them in one at a time, and no one's going to notice that basically we're completely rebuilding the entire army right in front of their gate. Not in any shape or form would anyone spot that there's something wrong. Yeah, it's like so first of all, how small was your army that nobody will notice? Mm-hmm. Or how blind are the enemies? And as long as you've got the perfect mix, laughing. You're absolutely laughing. You've got three blokes and one blind guard. You're going to be fine. <laughs> In fairness, the, like the, the battle scene at the, at, the, at the castle, I thought that was actually quite well done as well, especially with the fact when you consider that it was Vector just Val Kilmer and Sorsha and Willow you just basically fighting them on their own. Like, I loved the two-headed monster that came out of the kind of the slime as well. Yeah. So, so I, they, I read on the thing there, they're, they're, we're calling it a dragon. It breathes fire. Dragon for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of very pleasantly reminded that there are so many different variations on a theme. Like if I think dragon straight away, I tend to think Game of Thrones Dragon heart, dragon. It's, you know, your scaly lizard with wings. This isn't that at all. This is a big yoke mm. that breeds fire. And I was just like, no, dragon, I'm okay with this. Um, obviously, how deep is that pond? Yes, it kind of seems to kind of, you're kind of there going, wait a second, that just seems to be a small puddle. What's going on here? Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw Willow walk through that a moment ago. Like, <laughs> uh, maybe he was walking across their heads. But, um, it was really good, but this was, I think, no, that this was, ha- no, this was the third time. And I, I, I text you as I was going, uh, just totally out of the blue, no context. I went, three Willem screams is a bit much now, Ron. Uh, the Willem scream, look, I'm sure everyone listening knows that the Willem scream is that scream. You have heard it. It has been used in all of the films forever. Ah! Um, and like, it's always in like big battle scenes or whatever. And it tends to stand out. Does, so yeah. when you do it twice, it's like, are we doing this for comedy? When you do it three times, are we just like, did we run out of money? Um, and yeah, because one bloke, I think one poor lad gets eaten. Uh, again, kids film, kids film, kids film. I mean, you don't see entrails at this part. Um, but yeah. what it reminded me of is it reminded me of uh, the last world Jurassic Park 2 when your man is actually torn in two that, that's by not a kids movie ah, no, that is a horror film uh, I walked out of the cinema me yeah. and my little brave my brave little eight year old ass just walked out of the cinema with the with raptors in the long grass couldn't do it are you serious oh, I've, 100% to, to the point where I'm still getting teased about it uh, by my nephews who by the way were not alive when this was happening <laughs> so you're not allowed to tease me but my sister who I went to the cinema with it very much is allowed to tease me and yeah I was just like because even as an 8 year old I was like why would you walk into the long grass there's surely a way around it anyway uh, not this film I, I see the reference I see where this, this film would evoke that like in what's really great overall about it is that it's you know it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the the Ewok thing from Return of the Jedi in terms of somebody that you don't think would be able to make the difference in the world and that's exactly what they do and like you know from the point of view of the character of Willow like I I like the setup at the start that you know he was trying to 
prove that he could be the magician and things like mm. that. And it just, it didn't work out for me. He's a bit down in his luck and all that. And then he has to undertake this noble quest and all that. And he comes home then returning here. Like it is, it's completely the story of Bilbo or Frodo Baggins as well. Oh, like what a, and I, this is, I text you this as well. So what I got, I know this possibly is a hot take Sean Farrick original because I didn't see this in the IMDb trivia. I got strong Quasimodo um, feeling off this. And I got that uh, Mad Morgan is Captain Phoebus and Sorsha is Esmeralda. Now, as in you have your lead character who is not your romantic lead. Yeah. So that's, I'm sorry, I'm basing this, I am obviously basing this not off the Victor Hugo novel, which is just 300 pages of depression. No, I mean the, the Disney adaptation, which came after this film, um, where you have, you know, Captain Phoebus, who may or may not be on the right side in the beginning and very much ends up on the right side as it goes along. And of course, he gets the girl. Uh, and everyone's really happy in the fact that, yeah, he's lifted up as a hero and everything. And then, oh, Quasimodo's delighted, you know, friend, 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 friend. Willow's like, friend, 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 friend. And off he goes home again. All right, Willow, thanks for all your help. Off you fuck. Um, and uh, I'll just take that title billing from you there. Thanks very much. Uh, also, because Willow sounds easier to say than Mads Mordigan. I couldn't figure it out. It was what was a mad, like a nickname at the start. And his name was actually Morgan. Yeah. And then I was there, why Because it was really starting to annoy me because I was kind of there going, all right, we get the fact that his nickname is Mad. Like, would you just start calling him Morgan, please? And then I checked IMG, is there, oh, right. Mm. So his name actually is Mad Morgan. Like one of the, one of the things I like so much about, so fantasy naming, right? I love cool, kick-ass fantasy names, you know, kind of Bav Morda, Maz Morda, they're cool names. But I then like, nicknaming them sometimes not always but i like sam gamji samuel gamji you know samuel i know is not exactly the most you know mads mordigans of names but you know you have something like that you know um help me out there's got to be other examples i'm either where there you kind of you get a kind of a more or less modern sounding nickname on a fantasy longer name what have we got here She's in drawing a complete blank on this now. You've feckin' so much now that I'm like now that I've brought up the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like that, like that example of blah. Yes, exactly. That's the uh, exact one. Yes. Um, or am I just thinking of John Snow? Like his name is not fantastical in any way. His name is just John. Uh, Danny, Daenerys, maybe. Um. Like even this, like you man, like the Irish actor we spoke about earlier, like his name is basically Eric, but when you see it spelled, it's A I R K, Eric. Yeah, just like just call him Eric, or just go even cooler, call him Rick. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Rick the soldier. But um, it's it's one of those films that I think that unless you're a child of the eighties, it'd be very hard to engage with this film. I think I just think that there it's. It takes too long itself to get going and the action wouldn't be up to say, like if you showed, if I showed this to my nephews, I'd say they'd roll their eyes and get the hell out of the room as quickly as they could watching it. But for someone like me, I like I don't remember watching Willow at all. I have no recollection of watching it. And when I sat down and I watched it and I just saw this, there's this wonderful charm to the film. And I really liked the central performance from Warwick Davis. I really enjoyed Val Kilmer. I enjoyed the fact that, you know, he kind of, 
he was an ass at the start. Then he, he said, oh, wait, maybe he's actually going to be a good guy. Then he just ditches the baby again. And then he becomes good and becomes the hero. And like I was there going, actually, no, I enjoyed that. And even the thing with Sorsha, it was clear as day she was going to turn and be good. Yeah. Again, like, again, it was just, it, it's just enjoyable. Right? I love, like, you said to me, uh, you texted me earlier on, you said about, like, the um, the scene where they're going down the, uh, down the mountain on the sled. Yeah, that was good. Oh, actually, wait a second. I, I was in hysterics at that. Did you notice that the stunt double for Warwick Davis is wearing a Warwick Davis mask on their face? I did. It's, it's, no, I I have to say, I didn't think that was a stunt double. I thought that was just, they had just got this really shit puppet because oh, possibly, yeah. it's the way, because it would work now if it was the mask as well, because obviously you don't have any muscle control over a mask. And if, if it flops to the side, it'll flop that little bit extra. And yeah. that's what I kept noticing is that it was just like, Lads, pull the camera back. You're the like the, the HD remaster did you no favors here. The side angle of the thing going down. I was kind of looking. I was there going. That's actually a mask over something. I said, that's that right. So I think even the hairline. It's like it's just like we not so much in a rush because it's it's otherwise it's really good sequence. Like it's really fun and you know there's obviously there's some a lot of clever stunt work going on. But there was just like ah that guys guys if your lead character is the little person well surely it's the little person we'll be looking at during this scene yeah you know um maybe obscure him a little bit more also i don't want to be grim but there's no way that baby survived that no absolutely not, not. Like there's plenty of times when, like when you're watching the sequence you're going yeah no one's going to survive this kind of thing under any circumstances at all like uh, I thought when so he they get down to the village and he kind of he does that that almost the home alone slide into the yes uh, into the house yeah uh, and this is where oh yeah, right so that baby's just been impaled on a piece of wood Grant <laughs> so then Willow manages to bleeding profusely from his impaled liver you know gets up and gets to the door and looks up and there's a moment of where I thought these are not going to do this are you and because he goes oh my god and looks up now what we see is I was really, really laughed because there's like this snowball effect of Mads Mordigan who has been rolling down the hill and they've oh, made yeah. it kind of almost cylinder-esque and smashed it. And I have to say, I, I properly laughed out loud with that one. But what I thought for a moment was like, oh, are they going to do this? He's going to look out and there's going to be half the mountain coming down on top of them. Like, not only have you not escaped with the baby, but you've killed this village. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was actually thinking the same thing because that was my initial thought was you're going to see a full avalanche coming down here on top of them. Uh, I thought it was thinking like, you know, kind of like, no, I know they had done avalanches in films before that, but in 1988, were children ready to see a village wiped out by an avalanche? And they're like, we need to rewrite that prophecy fairly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> These, whoever make, whoever, whoever like, you know, the Starbucks of prophecies. Hi, I'll have a, a grande prophecy, please. Thanks very much. Yeah. Would you like to go large? Oh, I guess we better because the, the grande is gone. I um, don't know why that was the uh, analogy I chose to go for there, but I'm delighted. Uh, I think the caffeine has just kicked in there, show. Sorry. So, Sean, over, thought, yeah. overall, then, would this be a film that you would recommend? Recommend? Yes. I do think that it has watch value. Like, I, I enjoyed this film. I, it's, a, it's a shade too long. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's two hour, I'd say it's roughly two hours, even if you get add credits and stuff either side, because yeah. uh, Disney Plus tells me it's two hours and six. Hmm. So, and I, I'd say there's a good, there's a good hour and a half film in it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, it's funny because they, I was reading that apparently Val Kilmer 
ad-libbed a lot of his dialogue. Mm. And I thought, oh, his was some of the dialogue that came across the best. Um, now, uh, Willow's more or less fine because Willow's kind of not so much the plot. Like he's the audience in a way. You yeah. know, we're following his story, which is, you know, why Mads Mardigan is a bit of a breath of fresh air. Um, why, I'm sorry, but I couldn't give less of a shit about Willow's family. Like, there's no reason to, you know. And also, his little children are horrible. Oh, my God, you're going off on a quest. There's dragons and ogres. Ah. Yes, thank you, children. I'm aware of that. Thank you. I did not need to have that shoved down my throat as I'm leaving the village. Um, I will be back in maybe 13 months, and, you know, maybe you just won't be here. Okay, I'll have a chat with your mother. Yeah, live in fear for the next year. Um, but um, there's no... I mean, with the exception of... Uh, is it is it sorry me Migas, uh, me or Miag, uh, his friend? Sorry, I've got the um, the pronunciation of his name wrong there. Um, Which one? The last one to, to the one who stayed with him at Mad Morgan after all the rest of them yes. left. Is this? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, um, he is probably after Willow the most on screen little person, other than his. Is he a landlord? Um, no, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably gets some of the funniest scenes considering he's in, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes of the film. And they were saying, like, Warwick Davis as well said that um, it had, uh, this film had the largest ever casting call for little people uh, at the time, like between 200, according to IMDb, between 225 and 240 actors were hired for the movie. So, like, it might be a small thing, but I kind of, you know, I really enjoyed seeing kind of, you know, that little village and kind of the life that they that they had there as well. Again, it all adds this wonderful 80s kind of, you know, mythos of how they present, say, these fantastical worlds. Yeah, no, I, I agree because, you know, it's kind of like in, in the way that uh, for the big Lord of the Rings fans out there, there was a big sequence cut from Return of the King, which would have seen us back in uh, a good chunk of time back in the shire and i like that kind of stuff you know just seeing people going about their day i get it when you're at the cinema time is a premium and your bum is numb at this point but um i i like that we kind of saw how their society if you like is built up there is clearly you know that magician is no no he is speaking everyone else be quiet now um and this guy seems to be somewhat of a scrooge maybe in the village, um, and gets pooped on and thrown up. Apparently he was thrown up on for real. That's right. Apparently he was for real. That was yeah. hilarious. And now do we know what the connection between this film and Masters of the Universe is? Which is the easiest question. Oh, I just, sorry. I did just see that and it's gone out of my head, but it's someone is in both. Sorry, yes. I realized that's such a, is it, uh, no, don't tell me because I have his name, Billy Barty. You have his name because you, you looked up on the internet. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm not even going to try and defend myself here. I'm literally scro- you can see me scrolling IMDb here. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He played Gwildor in uh, Master of the Universe. Actually, strange enough, like there was a lot of like, say, movies, like say, he, say Masters of the Universe and other kind of films at the time. They'd be set in these fantastical locations, but for some reason, they'd be brought to Earth. Like, mm. you know, like the start of He-Man is set in our Master of the Universe because it's not called He-Man is set in Eternia and then they go to Earth. And like, I'm kind of, you know, really appreciative of the fact that this film just basically said, no, we're in a fantastical land and we're staying here for the whole goddamn movie and we're not going to suddenly appear in, you know, 19th or 20th century Earth. Yeah. Um, 
cough, cough, never-ending story, cough, cough. Um, but but well, actually, now, tip of the hat of, as we must do all the time to ILM, there is some really gorgeous vistas in this film. And it's kind of, it almost surprised, even though I knew I was watching an ILM film, it surprises me and kind of like, oh, hang on, there's the budget. Like there's some really, really nice shots, particularly just the overheads of uh, Willow's Village. And there's clearly inserts of like rivers and mountains in the back and they look really stunning. Um, and I do think a certain young Peter Jackson was looking at that going, oh, I'm getting Rivendell. I'm getting <laughs> Rivendell off this. Um, and then there's the scenes up on the snow covered mountain, which again yeah. is like, this is really, really, really well done. And then you'd have, I don't know, some scenes which have not aged as well. Um, not awful, but just did they maybe film things out of order and realize, okay, guys, where's all that money? Well, you spent it. You went up the mountain. <laughs> oh, no. Apparently, what you were saying with the vistas and things like that, George Lucas actually wanted the film in China, uh, yes. but they refused him permission. So he just sent over a group of photographers just to take photos and said, like, and just brought it back. And then just use blue screen to kind of, you know, insert it into the movie. But like by large, like the effects, again, they're smart in terms of how they use the effects. Again, like one of, one of the things with the 80s was that you were limited. So you had to be creative, which made a huge difference. So, you know, you see that at use a lot in this movie. And it really works in terms of how it brings you into the world itself. Like, I totally agree. I think to, to, to get it out there, the worst CGI is mashing the two brownies in with everybody else. There's one scene during the battle where there's one of them is standing there and there's two sets of legs literally like walk between the brownie and the background where they're supposed to be in front of and you can it's just like the black line around them. But <laughs> that's me being really, really harsh because they get the worst of it. All the rest is pretty much rand. Like even the dragon with the fire looks pretty good for, I mean, yes, the dragon looks like it was made by a secondary school class, but it looks pretty good for what it is. And that's, again, being really, really harsh because it's ILM. You have to be harsh in ILM because they are good at what they do. Yeah, exactly. But again, like at the time, they were trying to basically build technology that didn't exist either. Yeah. Like, and that's the other kind of thing to kind of take into kind of affect it. Oh, wait a second. Some of the waterfall. Oh, sorry, I'm just reading here from uh, Wikipedia. Some of the waterfall scenes from the movie were shot at... Um, Someplace in North California, but also Paris Court Waterfall in Ireland. Yay! Love Paris Courts. Have to say, yeah, like Irish Tourism Board, give us money because everyone go to Paris Courts and film your films there. And uh, don't disturb the neighborhood. I say neighborhood. Because it. Um, it is gorgeous. Uh, and there's actually, I remember you've reminded me now, it's time for a tale with Sean. No, because it's really quick. I was like 15, 16, we were doing the Wicklow Way. And there is a moment where you just come up around a hill and it's obviously designed to be this way because you're, it's a man-made path and you walk right into a clearing and there's all of power scored estate in front of you with, you know, you have the waterfall come down one side. And we were just like, we were knackered. We were 15. We didn't do any exercise. Uh, and so we were like, Oh my God, worth it. Totally worth it. You know, be walking for 20 minutes thinking it was a hike, but uh, Oh, it was, it's, it's incredible. So yes, go there. Oh yeah, the film. Um, can we talk about the bit where Ron Howard stopped directing this movie and David Cronenberg stepped in? Which part was that? The ogre. What did that ogre do on anyone to have that happen to him? Oh my gentle Jesus. 
I was like, look, I, you can put a bit of horror in kids' movies. Like, you know, Mufasa's not getting back up, Simba. But like, oh my God. He turns around with the wand and he doesn't stop the ogre. He first of all eviscerates him and then transfigures him into a brain, which then explodes. And then these two little like lost souls of the ogres pop out and they fall into the bog of eternal stench. I was That's like, right. I'm never sleeping again. <laughs> It was the 80s, Sean. They they just decided children are actually adults and by God, we're not going to spare them in, under any circumstances. You're going to watch this and actually you're going to enjoy it and you're going to like it. You're not going to be scared by it. Like, it's funny. I watched it from a point of view of what would a kid nowadays watch? And I was like, with a lot of that stuff with the ogre and things like that, I was there going, Jesus, a bit much, isn't it? But then I remember thinking back, wait a second. If I was, you know, when I was younger, we would watch this and there would be an absolutely, there would be nothing said like you sort of, yeah, that's grand, yeah. He's just basically, you know, brutally killing this guy and then just, you know, putting him through pain before he dies. That's it. You and then while we were watching it, like, but our parents it's like going, ah, you don't know, you weren't in the war. Okay, <laughs> just for the record, sorry, my parents were not old enough to be in the war, and they will kill me if they hear me say that. Um, but uh, uh, I like, I'm already, I saw it two hours ago, and I'm fondly remembering it. I don't know how quickly I would rush to rewatch it, yep. but. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the soundtrack that I had heard in Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, heard again in Aliens. I believe I heard it again in Titanic, Braveheart. Anyway, uh, it's certainly, my God, Troy. I think he just copied and pasted. Anyway, um, it's, it's pretty well, it's pretty well directed. I, I like the humor that's come out of it. Ron Howard, I think, did an excellent job. Um most of the cast are pretty spot on. Will like Willow himself suffers, I think, in the third act of the script, doesn't know what to do with him. No. Because he's a sorcerer, which means he's not a soldier, and there's a lot of soldier battles going on. Yeah. So you, he effectively gets relegated to Mads Mardic in help. It's like you realize with a wand, you could just like get rid of everyone. Cool. Cool. All right, that's cool. Yeah. And then picks it up again. Then at the end, because we get the call back to the beginning, and uh, really that's on Bath Mortar for falling for that. By the way, like and ten points to Willow. You carry that trick off, you deserve the win. But yeah. you know yourself in these kind of films, like you know, you're, you're kind of you're being built up to say reach a certain point. Like for him, it's becoming the wizard, right? Yeah. So he get he gets one spell right, and then basically it's kind of the movie then says right. That's it. He's an expert now. He's got one spell right. Everything else has fallen into place. You don't need to see anymore. It's fine. It's fine. Then the movie ends and he kind of returns home like Betsy. That's right. I'm the wizard now. I know all the magic. And you're going to go, yeah, whatever. It's fine. It's the 80s. I'm I'm willing to suspend my disbelief here and just go with that and accept it. And that's fine. Yeah, I, I should just say, now, before I say these next few words, I'm just going to put allegedly, and I have no proof as to anything I'm about to say, which is shows already looking terrified. Um, so you know the way they say you should never get drunk and text your ex don't take a Hollywood amount of cocaine and write the ending of a film where you don't really know how you're going to pull it off and that's kind of what it feels like happened here yeah the ending like I was kind of there going I was happy with the ending with him just basically leaving the castle and everything being fine and then this whole homecoming and I "Eh, I don't really care about this now anymore this is where I kind of got the, the Return of the King vibes, like, you know, kind of like, hello, yeah. I'm Willow. And Mads Mardikin goes, my friends, you bow to no one. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, yes, it's wrong film, but still. 
and then gets back and, you know, kind of off to the undying lands. But, um, and then, oh yeah, back to the wife he abandoned. Um, he's 17. Sorry, like, like, you know, kind of like, and he's so clearly 17 as well. I'm like, yeah, you have two children who are like, they are definitely like seven or eight years old. Yeah. Like, Things I, I, happen differently in I this think- village. I think actually in real life, I think the kids were only like 10 years younger than Warwick Davis and they filmed it like. Just like, you know, I, I don't, I honestly don't know how to comment on that. Like, that's, I, I wish everyone well. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've done a lot of talking about it. Show, what do you, like in terms of say, um, when your secret children turn up at the door, will you be like, kids, sit down. I have a great film to show you. Or will you be like, so here's the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd find it a hard sell. Um, I'd have more hope for the coming Disney Plus series because I think there's definitely a world that can easily be explored in it. And I think, you know, with the way technology has changed and you know, everything in terms of storytelling has changed, I think there'll be a good story to be told there. Um, this, like you, I I would now have a fond memory of this, but I'd find it hard to say it's someone sit down and watch it unless they were hugely into this kind of thing. I don't think, as I said, a lot of these things when I watch back, I often use my nephews as a barometer and I say to myself, would they watch it? And by an hour chance, we know, but that's the way every kind of generation goes and things like that. That's not to say it's a bad film, of course it's not. Um, again, as we said, look, it does it it does take a while to get going and things like that. But when it gets going, it's fun, it's interesting, but it's just it's limited fun. Whereby nowadays you can just basically have like look at say The Last Jedi, which we always hate referencing, <laughs> and you see like this, you know, this chase through an entire casino planet and all this. And then you watch this and you see, you know, Val Kilmer fighting a guy basically in a, in a, in a forest somewhere on the back of you know, uh, a cart and you're kind of there going, like, that's the max you're going to get. And oh that. my goodness. I just, uh, thank you for reminding me because I read about that. So I was watching that going, guys, this looks really good. Okay. Like, this looks, this looks, yeah, there's a reason. Because Val Kilmer was there. Like this is like, but there was a stunt double. Uh, Val Kilmer is kneeling on the back of the cart and some poor stunt double's legs are being dragged along the ground. I was just like, now lads, first of all, the stuff you get away with as top billing. And second of all, I really hope that guy's okay. Can somebody please check to see if that stunt man is okay? Because like, oh dear. Oh dear. But anyway, yes, that was a very impressive looking stunt. For, uh, I, I've no idea why I'm going to bring this up, but this is nothing to do with the movie and has nothing to do with anything, but you just brought it to my attention and I, I, I need to say it because this is a bit of trivia that I think people need to know and I don't know why. There was a short-lived uh, cop TV series, I think it was in the late 90s, 97, 98, it was called LA Heat. Um, I used to watch it, it was, oh, yeah. ter- it was terrible, but I used to watch it. Um, but they used to have these absolutely incredible stunts and kind of sequences in the, mo- in, in the TV series. I often they were going, how the hell did they have the budget for that? And it turned out they didn't. And what happened was is that when when big budget movies would make you know, movies and they'd have certain scenes, but scenes that they'd have to cut and things like that, but the footage would have been actually there. So what they did for the TV series was, right, we're going to take that scene, that scene, that scene, and we're going to build an entire plot around it. And then you basically got all these things happening and suddenly, bang, there's your set piece straight what? into. You don't spend money because on, on the stunt because the stunt was filmed by someone else. For someone else, you just 
to structure your story around it. You know what? I mean, as I I can't I'm assuming right that obviously people like they paid for it or whatever, like they were allowed to do. Otherwise, you're just robbing somebody's work. Well, I mean, robbing somebody's work as opposed to paying for somebody's work. But I'm saying if you do that, like I certainly have written things in the past where someone will go, right, here's a character, here's a situation, and here's the location. Go write a story. Grant. And which is technically the same thing, except for this, well, actually, no, slightly lower budget the way they're doing it. It's like fair play. Um, yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. I think I will start doing that. So when your car explodes tonight, don't worry. <laughs> it's for the show. <laughs> but overall, back to the middle of the discussion. Yay, um, okay, yeah. <laughs> like I I'd find it hard to recommend it, but as I said, I'd recommend it to someone from the 80s who would like, say, the Neverending Story, um, say the Dark Crystal Masters Universe thing like that. I'd absolutely recommend it to them. I'd find it a hard sell to someone older, or say, sorry your kids of this generation, I think it'd be much harder sell. But I do have a lot of hope for the upcoming TV series because I think there's a lot of stuff there to work with and build upon. And unfortunately, it looks like Val Kenner won't be in it due to his recent suffering with, uh, with his illness and things like that, which would be a shame because it'd be great to see him in it as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And funny enough, um, it was only quite recently that I learned uh, he had had suffered from thorough cancer because there was an interview around Top Gun Maverick yeah. that they uh, Tom Cruise was adamant that he be in the film, which fair play, you know, it's yeah. Hollywood loyalty, which is nice. And again, it's not really something you hear very often. And they were talking about recreating his voice through AI. Now, right. remains to be seen, obviously, how they put it off, but I, mean, I suppose... I, I would, we would all be foolish to think that there are not multiple recordings of all of our voices out there uh, for example, I haven't been on this pod. I am having a nap right now. And the recording that I have... Um, so, I mean, it's obviously very, very doable, which would be really cool. Which means I wonder... I don't know how these things time up or if they've already started making this or whatever. But if anyone's got a budget for that kind of stuff, the House of Mouse has that kind of budget. Absolutely. So, is there anything... I kind of feel like we've covered everything. It feels like... Because it feels like I'm still watching the film. Because that is my, my, my one criticism. It's too long. That's, yeah. that's my, my big criticism about it. So that's kind of everything. I enjoyed it. It was good. I liked the performances all around. It's several different films in one. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But again, there's nothing wrong with that either. Because like you watch a lot of films and you say there's several you know, films in one. From a point of view of like a young kid in the 1980s watching a fancy movie, it's great crack. And it's really, it's, it's entertaining. And it has exactly what you want. Like it's got unique characters, unique settings. It has some action, some violence and, you know, bad comedy. And it's got a, you know, it's got a lovely hero at the center of it. And it's a straightforward black and white, good versus evil tale, which the 80s was brilliant for. So that's, you know, that's what I always champion with this movie. That's why I really enjoy this movie. Really enjoy it, maybe not, but you know what I mean? I did enjoy it. That, 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 that's all right. That's all right. Well, that was cool, right? Well, thank you very much for, because it is, it is a movie that has been on a watch list forever. I don't know why we didn't get around to watching it uh, originally, like as in the house. And I mean, I will pass a polygraph and say I had never seen this film before, but my parents might be like, well, of course you watched it. It's Willow. Like, you know, you watched it as a baby. And of course, the reason why we're watching it is, and I totally forgot to mention at the very top of the show, a friend of the show, John Sheehan, told me, watch this movie and do a review of it. So John, I've done it. I hope you're happy now. We have reviewed Willow. So next suggestion, please. 
Excellent. John, thank you very much for your suggestion. And yes, to anyone else out there who has suggested a film that we'd like to cover, please get in touch. So on that, thank you very much for listening. You have all been awesome. And please remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Sean Ferrick as well, where you can stay up to date on whatever the heck is coming next. Joseph, where can people find you? And don't make the joke. Come on, we're beyond the joke now at this point. I'm, I, I'm going to have to actually ban you from you know, saying where can people reach me because I'm just there going, I just retweet random stuff and I don't really actually do for much engagement. But I'm on Twitter at Joseph Hurley. Yay! Hang on, you've retweeted me. Am I random stuff? Oh dear. Oh yes. dear. Uh, while we go and figure out the nature of our relationship, we will love you and leave you. You guys have been awesome. We have been Sean and Show, and this has been You're on Crack. Thanks, guys. Yeah.